The confusion of our languages and, in turn, humanity's general inability to communicate effectively with each other is a practical expression and a tangible reminder of rebellion against God's authority. Humanity once communicated with each other and with God using one language, with no confusion. But then rebellion happened, and everything changed. What would it take to really communicate again? Well, it would take an act of God. Welcome to episode 39, The Rethinking Babel Project, part two. Well, welcome back to the podcast. This is Greg Hall, and I'm glad that you decided to listen today. You know, last year we launched the All America Listener Challenge. We're on our way to having at least one podcast listener in each of the 50 United States of America. And since the beginning of 2022, we've added four new states and several additional cities to the map. So that's 29 states with listeners and 21 states where the Rethinking Scripture infection has not yet spread. So the podcast is not technically at pandemic levels yet, but I'm a doctor of ministry and I'm keeping a very close eye on things. Thanks to all of you who have helped spread the word. It's outstanding to see the numbers increase and you can track all the updates on our recent outbreaks at RethinkingScripture.com. In the last episode, we examined some of the supernatural aspects of the events at the Tower of Babel. And while God certainly confused humanity's spoken language in the seen realm, the confusion of our language really represents a much bigger rebellion that envelops both the seen and the unseen realms. It's that rebellion that has greatly diminished man's ability to communicate with God, to distinguish who he is, how he ordered the cosmos, and what he's accomplishing in the world. So over the last little bit, as I outlined what I wanted to cover regarding the Rethinking Babel project, it became clear to me that I had much more content than I originally thought. So Today, in part two, we will track the effects of Babel through some of the Old Testament stories and then into the New Testament just a bit. But it will be in the next episode, part three, that we really look into the phenomenon of speaking in tongues. And as I outlined that, the content I have for the phenomenon of speaking in tongues, I realized that I just probably needed to do a book study through the whole book of Acts where I can spend a little bit more time developing the ideas as I slowly walk through. So that's the new plan. We will cover the Babel Project in three episodes, talk about the Rethinking Conversion Project, and then we'll head into the book of Acts for a chapter-by-chapter study, much like we walked through the book of John last year. So let's recap a little as we prepare to take our Babel story on into the New Testament context. In one sense, the biblical story is a story about sacred space, the space where the different realms converge, where God communicates to his creation. Genesis chapter 1 through 3 is really the creation of sacred space, where God's function and order of the cosmos rules. And then when rebellion happens, it's a rebellion against God's authority and his rule, 
but it's God's functional rule that makes it sacred space. And when humanity rebels against that, they are exiled from that space. They are removed from the garden and they are told to spread throughout the earth. And as we move through the early stories of Genesis, the story of the flood then is a cosmic decreation event followed by a thematic new creation. Noah's family plays the role of the new Adam and Eve characters, and they too fail to remain at rest with God's functional rule. We talked about that a bit in the last episode. The early biblical story then ends up with the events at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And this too is a story about rule, about order, and about sacred space. Instead of spreading throughout the world, humanity has congregated into one place, and it's Babylon. And they are attempting to create their own sacred space with their own order for how things are to be done for how communication with God is to take place. And we also pointed out that the Tower of Babel story isn't just about human rebellion, but it also includes a rebellion of those in the unseen realm, spiritual beings that were also in rebellion with God's established order. So the Tower, the Tower of Babel, it's an attempt to create sacred space and the ability to communicate with God on our terms, not his. It's the creation's attempt to supplant the one true God. And the confusion of communication is the judgment. And if you haven't seen it yet, I hope to point out that there is a theme of sacred space on mountains in the Old Testament. That's what Eden was, sacred space on a mountain. That's where the ark landed and Noah offered his sacrifice of rest on a mountain. It's the backdrop of the tower story. It's an attempt to build a sacred mountain and control communication between heaven and earth. And while the confusion of human languages seems to be the whole story of Babel, in reality, that's just a surface-level result of a much deeper rebellion. It's a supernatural attempt to manipulate and control the communication between God and his creation. That's what Babel is, a confusion of communication between heaven and the rest of creation. And that's what the city of Babylon will represent later in the biblical story as well. Shortly after the Tower of Babel story, God chooses Abraham. It's in the very next chapter, in fact. God picks a man out of the east where Babylon is, and God tells him he's got a place picked out to set up sacred space once again, the land of Israel. And Abraham follows God's lead, his rule, his established order, and Abraham travels to that space. And those familiar with the story of Abraham and his descendants may recognize how some of those later stories fit into this same theme. And I'll just mention a couple of them here. Uh, The first one, if we jump ahead to Genesis chapter 22 and talk just briefly about the story of the offering of Isaac. Well, this story happens in that land on a particular mountain. Abraham follows God's direction to set up an altar, to sacrifice his son Isaac. And as weird as this story sounds to us in our modern age, what I don't want you to miss is this is a story of sacred space on a mountain that God is establishing. It's a continuation of the theme. And later, in Genesis chapter 28, 
Isaac's son, Jacob, will have a dream of a ladder reaching into the heavens. And this is not a story of a fireman's ladder reaching precariously into the heavens. That, by the way, would be a violation of several building safety regulations, I'm sure. In contrast to what I once thought this ladder was, it is generally agreed upon that the ladder in Jacob's dream should be thought of as an ancient ziggurat, a sacred mountain. And in that dream, you have angels ascending and descending on this ladder. It's God's version of what they were trying to do at the Tower of Babel. Just going to read a couple verses from Genesis 28, verses 16 and 17. It says that when Jacob awoke from his dream, here's what he said. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And that's what he named the place, Bethel. Two Hebrew words, Beit and El, the house of God. It's a story of God establishing sacred space and communicating that to the descendants of Abraham and them coming to the realization about what God's about to do. Let's continue to follow that theme, the theme of creating sacred space and how God does that after the rebellion in the Garden of Eden. Let's follow that theme further into the biblical story because there's another famous mountain (laughs) in this land that God had promised to Abraham that involves sacred space. And it also involves God communicating to the descendants of Abraham. Does that ring a bell at all? Do you remember the events at Mount Sinai? Let me just read parts, and I'm going to start in Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And we're going to just try and see if this fits in with the theme at all. It says this, Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And we've already just read enough to find the theme again, right? The mountain of God. Horeb, that's just another name for Mount Sinai. And it's described as the mountain of God. That's sacred space. It's God-ordained space. And what did Moses find there? It's a bush, which is burning with a mysterious fire. And why is it mysterious? Because yet while the fire was on and in and throughout the bush, it was not consuming it. And then God said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. The story in Exodus chapter 3, it's a story of God establishing proper sacred space, a proper connection, a proper mode of communication between heaven and earth in the place and in the way it's supposed to happen. And it's important that we see the Tower of Babel story in this broader context. Despite what you may have been told or may have thought, this Tower of Babel story is not a standalone event. It's just one more story in the ongoing epic of God working to redeem his creation. And as we know, Babel is all about communication. We'd like to think it's just about the confusion of man's language, but that's just at the surface level of what's going on. The root of the story 
The root beneath the confusion of man's language is the loss of communication with the Creator. It's the story of God confusing improper attempts to eventually reestablish proper communication and order to his creation. And in the ancient Near Eastern context, that message that God was creating and reestablishing proper communication, well, that's a story of sacred spaces located on mountains. That's not the way we think about it in our culture at all, but that's how they thought about it in their culture. And that's the setting for the rest of the biblical story, God establishing proper communication through his sacred spaces. It's an attempt to return to the function and order that was lost in Eden, and it projects in and throughout the rest of the Old Testament and on into the New. I could spend more time giving you examples just out of the Old Testament, but I want to just mention one more before we move on. It's a story found in 1 Kings chapter 18, probably familiar to most of you as a standalone story, but want to encourage you to start thinking again thematically in this sacred space discussion that we're having. And it's this story that involves a prophet of God by the name of Elijah. And you guessed it, the setting is on a mountain. It's a showdown between the one prophet of the one true God and hundreds of prophets of those false gods. And it happens on a mountain where they are setting up sacred space. And Elijah, in 1 Kings 18, verse 21, asked all the people to come near, and he asked a very important question. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? He's asking them to pick a lane. He says, if Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. And Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. And he sets up the showdown. He says, give us two oxen, let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood and I will not put a fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, that is a good idea. This is a story of setting up sacred space. And whose God is it that has the authority to create sacred space? Well, the 450 prophets call on their God and there is no answer. And it's Elijah who actually does some mocking. He suggests that their God might be otherwise occupied, like going to the bathroom, or he's maybe on a journey or maybe he's taking a nap. Well, when that didn't work, Elijah took four pitchers of water and poured it all over the wood of his offering. And he did that a second time and then a third time. And the water flowed all around the altar and it filled the trench that was surrounding the altar. And then it says in verse 36, at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, it was Elijah the prophet that came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, ties it back to the Abraham character, Today, let it be known that you are God in Israel. And then he continues and says, and show that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your communication. I'm not creating this sacred space on my own. I'm following the rule and the function and the order that you've communicated. 
And then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And it says that when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The story that we find in 1 Kings chapter 18 of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, it's a story that continues the theme of sacred space. Who gets to set it up? Who gets to set the rules? And who the real God in the unseen realm is? So let's make our way into the New Testament and look into some of how these themes are communicated in that setting. And before we get into the events of Acts chapter 2, that's the next episode, I've got to take you to some of the verses in John and other places in the Gospels, and we can poke around at them for a little while. There is so much that the author, John, does to tie in some of these themes that we've been talking about just in the opening chapter of his Gospel, chapter 1. And in the opening verses of that chapter, Jesus is established as the Word, the Logos. And it's shown very clearly that he was involved with the creation of the cosmos. Well, that conjures up what story of sacred space? It's the story of Eden. And then later, John says that it's that Word, that Logos, this Jesus character, then tabernacled among men. Tabernacle. Well, that's the story of the sacred space of Sinai. That's where the tabernacle was originally constructed. And it's important in this first chapter that John points out that the religious leadership at the temple is just confused about what God is doing. They can't figure out who John the Baptist is. And verse 26 just flat out says they don't know Jesus. And while the religious leaders aren't getting communication from God, there are some who are. The early disciples recognize Jesus immediately as one sent from God and the king of the sacred space of Israel. But it's then in the last two verses of this chapter that John, through the words of Jesus, ties all of this imagery together. In his own words, Jesus, he tells the group of new disciples that have gathered around him, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you all, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. It's a statement that many people just pass right by because they don't know (laughs) what to do with it. (laughs) But I hope you recognize the connection back to Jacob's dream, back all the way to Genesis chapter 28, verses 16 and 17. The angels are ascending and descending. That's the idea of sacred space. But in Jacob's dream, they're using a ladder. But here, they're not using a ladder or a mountain, a ziggurat anymore. They are using the Son of Man as their connection between the worlds. Jesus is explaining to them that he, the Son of Man character, is sacred space. He offers proper communication from God. Wherever he is, that's sacred space. He is the fulfillment of the temple imagery. He is the fulfillment of the holy mountain of Sinai. And he alone can solve the curse of of Babel and give clear communication between the realms. It is quite the picture of Jesus that John is painting for us in the beginning of his gospel. 
Jesus is the way back to the rule that was established in Eden. Jesus is the one with the plan to bring the cosmos back under proper authority. And it's Jesus who is the answer for all the confusion that humanity can't solve on their own. So to round out today's episode, let's just look at a couple other events in the gospel accounts that might be related to this idea of languages, confusion, and dual responses that people have to the messages of God, because either they understand the messages or they don't. And we can just start by looking at Jesus, the way he taught. He often used parables, and he used them for teaching spiritual truths. And the results of this method of using parables is that some could only see the parables at face value. But others understood what he was teaching about in the spiritual realm. Parables, I think, become another manifestation of the curse of Babel, because they're told, and some people understand them right away, but others are highly confused. And it's that confusion that's a leftover from the Babel rebellion. Well, even before Jesus started using parables, before he was even born, there's a story in the book of Luke It's a really interesting story about the birth of John the Baptist. The parents in the story, Zacharias and Elizabeth, are both described early on as righteous in the sight of God. In other words, they were already believers. Zacharias was a priest, and he was visited by an angel while he was in the temple right in front of the Holy of Holies. The angel that's visiting is Gabriel, and he said that his prayers, Zacharias' prayers, have been heard. This is one of those angels that ascends and descends from heaven, the evidence of true sacred space. And the result of his prayers is that his wife would have a son whom they were to name John. Ends up being John the Baptist. But Zacharias doesn't believe him. He doesn't believe the function and the order that God was bringing into his world. (laughs) And the consequence of that is very interesting. It's not how I would have written the story. What's the consequence? Behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words. That's Gabriel speaking. And Zacharias stays mute throughout the entire pregnancy. But as soon as the baby is born and Zacharias confirms that his name was to be John, it says this, At once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he began to speak in praise of God. He was then filled with the Holy Spirit. We're in Luke chapter 1 here, by the way. This is in Acts 2. He was then filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied. You can read all about it, Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 80. And to me, that story belongs in the discussion of the Tower of Babel theme. There's so much going on there that corresponds with the confusion of languages, and then what we read about on into Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And similar to this story of Zacharias, who loses his ability to speak and then gains it back, Jesus, when he heals many people, for some of those who were mute, he gave the gift of speaking. We see this mentioned in Matthew 15, 31. And in Mark 7, 32 through 37, Jesus opened the ears and removed the impediment of his tongue so a man could speak plainly. 
a large portion of Jesus's ministry had to do with clear communication. And when he communicated, there were often two desperately different responses that people had to his words. Some immediately recognized what God was communicating and accepted it as such, and others completely rejected it. We don't see a lot of fence-sitters in the gospel accounts. And it's not just in the scene realm that this was happening. In Mark 1, 34, we learn that Jesus was not permitting demons to speak because they knew who he was. And we see it again in Luke 4, 41, when the demons, after being cast out of people, began shouting, you are the son of God. And Jesus rebuked them. He would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. Jesus is controlling the communication for his own purposes. And these are all connections to the confusion of languages that happened back at the Tower of Babel. Well, that's all I've got for today. I hope I've given you some more things to think about that maybe you hadn't connected with this idea of the short story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. Part two of the Rethinking Babel Project recap, and it's taken this long just to set up what happens in the book of Acts. And that's what we'll dive into in part three of this little series. What in the world is going on in the book of Acts with the gift of speaking in tongues? And how are we to understand Paul's letter to the Corinthians when he talks about that gift? And how does all that fit into the story of Babel? We've got lots of things yet to cover, so we'll see you next time. And as always, thanks for listening. Please take some time to rate, review, and recommend to your friends the Rethinking Scripture podcast.